part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Want to open your Bibles to Psalm 27? We live uh, in a world that is filled with fear. And it is a world that, that we would have to be naive to think that we're not growing our kids up in a world where almost every day you hear of another catastrophe, you hear of another evil. And so sometimes when we open up the Bible and we see about this protection of God and we see these promises of God, even to the most faithful of people, we're going, okay, that, that's good and I'm mature enough that I can understand that, but what about my son and what about my daughter or what about my loved one who's not quite as advanced in their faith? And, and this morning I want you to see that in Psalm 27, just a, if you want to say a, a very simple prescription for people, whether you have mighty faith or whether you have really what you would call simple childlike faith, or if you feel like, man, I, I barely have even a grain of faith, that, that God doesn't sit there and say, okay, what you need is to have mighty faith. Uh, what he says is you need to have faith and place it in the might that I have, the truth that I have. And so we're going to open up. Or we're not going to be able to look at every verse this morning. In fact, we're going to be somewhat simplistic about it because I want just to show you one truth. And as I said before, it really is the truth that for the most part we've been repeating for the last two or three weeks. So if you've been here, you're going, you know, that sounded kind of like the sermon from last week. I promise you that I struggled. I, I didn't want to be repetitive. Uh, no pastor, we're already boring enough. <laughs> we, we don't want to be, you know, add to that boredom by kind of saying the same thing over and over again. And yet when you open up and you turn to this psalm, to that psalm, to that psalm, there is a resounding message and it's repetitive. Now, why would that be? I ask myself that question. God, why can't there be something new, exciting, so everybody's going, oh, man, take notes. This is good. Instead of, didn't he say that last week? The message I got back is twofold. Number one, Bobby, sometimes it's in the simple truths that we miss because we're looking for something grand and glorious. And sometimes it's just the fundamental, it's the foundational, it's just on Christ the solid rock I stand. And that should just be enough. It really should be enough, guys. Why do we need this, that, and the other? Is there not sufficiency on Christ the solid rock we stand? And so sometimes it's that, that we're searching for more and we have maybe just in our humanity that we want something more when God says, look, my truth is sufficient. The second thing that he kind of taught me was, I mean, not every ear is heard. Not, the light hasn't come on to everybody, and so preach it again. It's going to be a whole different chapter. I'm not going and using my same notes from each chapter. I'm looking at each chapter and each different psalm, and yet it's the repetitive message. And what is this repetitive message? Let me go ahead and give you the punchline right up front. We pray for elimination of our problems when God, the, the historically, biblically, for the most part, did he eliminate some problems? Yes, there were times that he took foes right out. But most of the Bible is not about the elimination of problems, but it's his preservation of your life through the midst of problems. I'm going to hear that in one of two ways, guys. And you're going to hear this in one of two ways this morning. It's what we call the flesh, that is our own humanity, our fallenness. And we're going to say, well, you know, my preference would be that God is just this illuminator, that he gets out this holy magical wand, and when I say I have this difficulty in my life, that he just kind of abracadabras that thing, and boom, it's gone. 
my flesh wants that. And as I told a group this morning, especially if it's my kids, it's my kids, it's my girls, and now my guys, I promise you my first prayer is elimination. And yet the most maturing times of my own personal life and what I've seen in other Christians and I've seen in my wife was not elimination, but the way that God showed that he could help preserve us. And really that's the beauty of what James was saying. And James, he said, consider it all joy when you fall into these various trials and tribulations. He wasn't saying, oh, be happy that you just lost your job, that you just did this, that the doctor said you have this disease. He does not make light of any of those things. He makes much of the process that God is going to mature, correct, show you things that you never knew before into the darkness of that night, and then you begin to see the beauty of the light. I'll never forget, I was about seven years old, uh, six years old. My parents were going through a divorce. I was living with my aunt and uncle. Uh, they lived in Ohio. We went to Mammoth Cave. Anybody ever been to Mammoth Cave before? And when you go down to the belly of the well, I mean, you go all the way in there, and I don't know if they still do this or not, but they used to turn off the lights. And one guy would take out one match. I mean, truly, when they turn off the lights, you could not see your very hand in front of you. It was that dark. And he would take out this one little match or one little lighter, and he would light that. And all of a sudden, it wasn't like it was bright light. It's not like 10 million lumens all of a sudden. And you could see. It was amazing how that one little light filled the vastness of that darkness. I was always amazed at that as a kid. You know, that's just one of those things at six or seven years old, you're like, okay, that made my day. And you remember those days. There's a spiritual truth in that, and I think that so oftentimes, in preserving us in the midst of the darkest times of our lives, God is showing that the light of Christ is sufficient. By eliminating the darkness, we kind of turn, I mean, let's be honest, okay, if we answer this in the flesh, in our humanity, and we prayed three times for God to eliminate something, and God eliminated something. Next time a real struggle comes up, and you're like, what are you praying for? Elimination or preservation? I mean, I'm just going to keep on preaching. Okay, you took out these three things. Here's my list, Santa Claus. I mean, God. The flesh, that's what the flesh does. The spirit within us, the spirit that God has placed within us, especially that, that saintly spirit, the saved spirit, really begins to look at what James says, consider it all joy. And we don't laugh about the problem. We go, God, isn't that miraculous that you brought us through the darkest of night? In the midst when we cannot even see our hand in front of our face, spiritually speaking, you lit up the cavern, uh, this, this cavern of darkness, and you showed light. That's what we see here. It's the Psalm of David. And when we think of David, we think of David Goliath, we think of David in a lot of kind of monumental victories, and yet David really did, some, from his own sin, had a lot of trouble in his life. More than likely, most theologians say that this was probably written at a time when uh, David's a little bit older, his son now is older, and his son actually is trying to take over the kingdom, and it's actually not just trying to take over the throne, but actually in order to take over the throne, trying to eliminate his father from life. He's trying to kill his father. I don't know that any of us have ever faced that heartbreak. Certainly we've had estrangement in our families. We've had times when, you know, our child said to us, you know, 
I'm just going to go from home and I'm going to leave and I'm not going to talk to you again. We've probably had some of those times, whether that was when they were eight years old and they got their dentist, the menace, little knapsack and went out and got to the end of the street and said, you know, I'm hungry. I better go back and get peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that mom can make. Or whether it's in that defiance of a teenager or even in that defiance of adulthood. We've probably all been there before, but I don't know that any of us could say that we've actually had one of our children come against us with the threat of life. More than likely, that's the setting for this. When I was in Israel, I actually went to a place that we know historically David hid from his son. And it's called David Springs, and there's a fountain that's coming through there, and there's caves, and you can go back in those caves, and it's where David hid during some of the time when his son was coming after him to take his life. And so you're standing right there, and you're trying to even begin to imagine what that would be like. This psalm more than likely is linked to that. We don't know for sure, but more than likely, that's where most theologians and scholars say, this was probably about the time of David's life, and he's relating to that. So what what does he say there? I'm going to skip one on you, Jeremy, and we're going to go straight to 27.1, but I'll come back to that other one in just a moment. The psalm of David, the Lord is my light, and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? I want you to notice something about the sentence structure there. I was never one of those guys that liked, you know, sentence structure and all that kind of stuff. How many of you were the type of people that you loved to diagram sentences? Shame on you. Man, I never got that. I'm going, it's, it's a sentence, okay? Can't we just leave it that it's a sentence? And then we don't have to diagram and find the verb and this, that, and all these other things. I was never good at that. And yet the older I get, especially as I open up the Word of God, I see in the structure of how sometimes God just has written His Word and ordained His Word that there really is purpose and placement of this, that, and the other. Here, what do you notice first? A question or a statement? Statement. And after that statement comes a question. Do you see that? It's actually statement, question, statement, question. When we start with a statement, especially one that's factual and that is maybe widely accepted, then we ask a question. Most of the time, what kind of question is that? We call it a certain type of question. A rhetorical. In other words, because of what we've already said and because of this known fact, now we ask this question But the answer is already kind of stated. Would you say that for as much as you can tell that David's kind of following that pattern here? That he makes a statement of fact. And what is the fact? What's the first fact that he says? Just say it out loud. Lord is my light and my salvation. Darkness, he said, okay, your light. That word salvation means rescuer. I mean, if he's really writing this in that context of running for his life, and he sees, you know, his son and those that want to uh, come against him. And he says, okay, Lord, my hope is not to out-connive, out-think, and out-strategize my son. I just have to be a little bit more Navy SEAL than him. If my kind of instincts kick in and I've got some little superhuman powers here and they kick in more than his, then I can sit and he said, no, Lord, you're my only hope. My ability here isn't to outthink, outduel, out this, out whatever. Lord, you are my light in this darkness, and you are my salvation, my rescuer in the midst of this. 
And he asks a question. And that question is, whom shall I fear? Do you think it's rhetorical or not? Do you think he knows the answer to that question? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think he's asking from that point. From the statement that he made right before, I think he goes, there's nothing to fear here. Well, in one way, there is something to fear. His son is still coming after him, if that is the setting. His son still wants to take his life and take his throne. And yet, how can you say, even if it's rhetorically, even if it's kind of, how can you say there's nothing to fear when there is obvious fear right in front of you and you're hiding in a cave or you feel the, you can hear the distant hoofbeats of, of, of an army coming? See, that's where you and I live. How many of y'all live in Realville? Does sometimes, does your faith seem distant from Realville? And let's just be honest. Let's just really be honest. We've got a smaller crowd today. It's, an, it's right after the holidays. We're family. Are there times that your life in Realville, your real life, seems kind of a little bit maybe separated from some of the promises of God? And that's okay if you say, no, man, I am just, you know, right there and I count on those promises. There, there's sometimes that that darkness really does get really dark. And we're straining to see the hand in front of our face and we just can't. At those times, what do we do? Do we give in to realville? Or do we come back to the truth that we know exists? We just don't kind of feel it, know it, kind of grab it at that time. I think that's what David is doing here. I don't know that he's lighthearted over the fact that his very son wants to take his life. I don't think that he's lighthearted that he, his own life might end in a tragic way, maybe even a violent way. I think what he does, what we've talked about so often times, David gets away from the, 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 the personal sensitivity and emotion of the problem and he backs up so that he can make sure that in his view he doesn't just see the darkness of that problem, but he sees the light and the salvation, the rescuer that's there. And sometimes we just need to do that, guys. Whether you do that by this illustration where we focus on just the here and now and how Christ is constantly saying, look eternally, look eternally. Whether you think about it as backing up, there's times in our lives that I don't think we just need to go through a rote thing of just mentioning these facts of truth and and faking a rhetorical question. I think there's times in our lives that we just need to know that God is God, that he is able, that he's willing, that he is the light, he is salvation. And in comparison to all that God is, there is nothing that we really should fear. Do you get that? Let's go into the second part of it. Another fact. What's his second fact? Uh, go back to that first verse. I'm sorry. There's a second fact that he puts out. The Lord is the stronghold. This is where we get some of those He's this high tower. There's a lot of different things that this word stronghold means. The security. This is who he is. It means his strength. He says, okay, the Lord is my strength. And then he asks another question. Does it have a sense of a rhetorical question? In light of, you know, who God is, you know, I'm not so afraid. Growing up, I had this one guy. His name was Johnny Puckett. Johnny was just a good old boy. 
Johnny was about six foot three and about 235 and probably a body fat of zero or negative. I don't know if you can be negative, but, but he was one big muscle. And as long as Johnny was part of our four or five guys walking around, we pretty much thought we were studs. <laughs> Very foolishly. But it wasn't because of the strength of our own ability. I was 6'1", 120 pounds at one time. Yeah. I'm almost twice the man I used to be. You know? <laughs> Grown up and matured in so many ways. I'm twice the man I was when I was a kid. But, I mean, I was 6'1", 120 pounds. Turned sideways, and that was my defense. Okay, I'm hiding from you. You know? <laughs> Not so much anymore. But as long as Johnny Puckett was there, it was amazing. It was amazing. And he always had a grin on his face. I mean, he, always, he was just one of those guys that was big and burly and strong and would knock you out with a smile on his face. I mean, he was just one of those guys. And you felt security, not in your own strength, but who is with you. That's where David's coming from. David's king, and yet he's running for his life. David is dad, and yet he's running for his life. David fought a Goliath, but I promise you, if you put him up and say, do you want to face Goliath again, or do you want to run from your son for your life? Because the emotions involved, he said, give me 20 Goliaths. Do you get that? That when it comes to our family, when it comes to the emotions of what he was facing here, and wouldn't you take 20 Goliaths? over one emotional situation, family situation. A lot to confuse him, a lot to cloud the scene, and yet he comes back and he begins with these statements. Can we go back to that very first slide now? Jeremy, I appreciate you. In Ephesians 6, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. For we wrestle not, uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, if you're not familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, if you're not even familiar with church, you're gone. Okay, so you're one of those churches. (laughs) You're going to get into all the spiritual and all this. Uh, We are one of those churches. We actually believe that, that there's a God and that there's a Satan because the Bible says that and that we do face spiritual warfare. We are one. Okay, we, we really do believe because the Bible says it. And what Paul was trying to get the Ephesians to see here is that sometimes we identify that this is just a battle of wits or maybe a battle of this, that, and the other. And he said, no, this, this battle is against truly not just the situation, but there truly are kind of you know, other forces that are working here. Never discount, guys, the spiritual warfare that we live in. We have two enemies or two battles in life. One is what we just described as the flesh, the fallen nature. That we're going to have to, you're going to have to contend, unfortunately, with at least a, you know, a bent toward selfishness, a bent toward pride, a bent toward those things and until you take your last breath, until you're totally glorified. Now, we can have victory over those things. Please do not hear that we are defeated by those things. Because of the power of Christ, we can have victory over those things. But don't think you're not going to have to battle with those things. So on one hand, we're we're fighting what's within this old flesh, this old nature. But I promise you, we are fighting an evil one, a liar. 
And, and sometimes I think that in, in modern church, we think that we've gotten so smart that we just don't make enough of that. We're not trying to make much of Satan. We're trying to make much of what God has warned us about. He says here, this is what you're fighting. And I imagine if this psalm truly is connected to a time when David is running for his life against his own son, that there is a battle going on that he might actually lose his breath in his life, but there is a greater battle going on in his very soul and spirit that his own son would come up and rise against him. Do you get that? How those two are different. We face the fear of the known. We face the fear of the unknown. The fear of the enemies that are seen and the enemies that are not seen. And so the Bible tells us, okay, in this battle, you have the same answer. And it's not you just getting stronger. It's not you putting on your boots and just getting ready for war. In fact, what followed in Ephesians 6 is not, okay, grab the armor and you attack. No, you grab the armor and you just stand. Five different times. Stand, 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 stand. Don't retreat. But he's not telling us to attack either. He said, in this spiritual warfare, you just stand. What do we stand on? Breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He, he gives us this armor to stand in the midst of this onslaught of this spiritual attack. And all those things are not strengths of ourselves. They're not matters of your character development or your personal maturity. They're all gifts of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The helmet of salvation... You, would, you could try all you wanted to to have some kind of a helmet and yet without the work of Christ you would not have the helmet of salvation. You would not have a breastplate of righteousness. You would not have the belt of truth. You would not have all these different things. A shield of faith if Christ had not been victorious. But yet in him we have these things. And so this is where he's going. He says, okay, the Lord is my light and my salvation. It's kind of a prophecy of, of just Christ is going to be the provision. He says he's the stronghold of my life. This is where I find my strength. He starts with truth. He goes with facts. And then look what happens in verse 2 and 3. Now, as we read this, I want you to be looking for something. I want you to be sensitive and, and in your mind, in your cognitive thought. Is David describing a description where God eliminated the enemy, elimination, or is it one that God is preserving him in the midst of the enemy? Okay? Base it just on God's word, not my interpretation, God's word. Verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army account against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Elimination or preservation? I mean, those are pretty fierce words. When, when my evildoers assail to eat up my flesh? I mean, I don't know that any of us really use that as a description for last week. Uh, I mean, maybe we've been in spiritual warfare and maybe we've been under a lot of pressure and we felt the heaviness of the world that we live in, real deal. But I don't know that any of us said, you know, it really feels like the evildoers are out there and they just want to eat up my flesh. I mean, he's pretty descriptive. He's pretty graphic here, guys. And I think it fits. 
This is the reality of his life. Doesn't sound like a trouble-free life, but look at verse 4 because it shows where he finds his confidence. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says, okay, one thing I ask. Here's my prayer. God gives me a prayer. Here's my prayer. Does he ask for elimination of the problem? God, sick him. I mean, that would probably be my prayer. Especially if it's my kids. God, you go eat up their flesh. I mean, I'm just being serious. Would have no problem praying that prayer. I'm just telling you honestly. Had no problem praying that prayer. God, somebody's coming after my kids, coming after my family, my wife. God, you sick them. You eat up their flesh. It's not what David prays. He doesn't pray for elimination. He prays that there's one way I get through this, God. I get through this by your strength, your power. I just, want, I just want to be in your presence. I just want to see your face. David's seeking is for the presence of God, not the elimination of strife and trouble. The resounding comfort of the ages throughout the Bible, because being fearful or afraid is mentioned Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? You know I had to bring in Genesis chapter 3, right? The fall. Fear is mentioned 500 times. The word fear, afraid, 499 times, depending on your translation. Throughout the Bible, it ends, guess where? Revelation 19. Last time it's mentioned because what happens in Revelation 20 and 21? We know how the story ends. But from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19... From the fall until the final glorification, guys. 499 times. Fear, afraid. Real deal. And so what we see is that God has made a promise. And that promise isn't to take us out of real deal. He hasn't even promised that he's going to eliminate our enemies. What he said is, I'll be with you in the, in the midst of that. Psalms 23, one of our favorite psalms. Verse 4. What's the first two words? Even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Go ahead and complete it. For you're with me. You're present. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. It's not a prayer of elimination. He said, I'm going through this valley, and it even describes it as the valley of the shadow of death, and yet he doesn't say that he doesn't have to go through the valley. He says, as I go through, here's what brings me comfort. God, you're here. Your presence here. Your might. This God that you are is with us in the midst of the storm. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you I have called you by my name, and you are mine. Sounds good so far, right? God says, Israel, I love you. The Jewish people, I I love you. I've called you to be mine. Now look what he says, verse 2. 
If you pass through the waters, is that what he says? What does he say? When you pass through the waters. Okay, he's just made this claim. You're my nation. You're my people. Man, I love you. I have covenanted with you. I'm not going to break this covenant. I mean, these endearing words of verse 1, fear not for I've redeemed you. I mean, he just makes every promise of connection spiritually to the people of Israel. And yet in verse 2, what does he say? When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Do you see the connection? He makes this grand, in verse 1, he says, you're my people. And here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to eliminate every flood and every fire from your life. He doesn't say that. He makes this great claim, you are my people. I call you out. I've redeemed you. I call you out. And when you go through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you go through the fire, I'll be with you. As much as we are drawn to elimination, think about it. Think about it for just a second. Where does God really get bigger in your mind, in your heart, and in your life? An elimination? Or when he's right there beside you and he preserves you through the fire and through the flood? It's kind of an amazing thing. As much as we are bent, and we are bent toward elimination, let's just admit that this part of us, this fleshly part of us, says just eliminate this. Take this away. Especially my kids. Take it away. And yet, do I not want my kids to be mature in Christ? If God eliminated every difficulty out of my children's life and all they had is my testimony of his faithfulness, then it's daddy's God. But when they're going through the floods and when they're going through the fire and they know my God protected me, it's not daddy's God anymore. It's their God. Do you see that? That's real bill, guys. That's real bill. As much as we want to preserve our kids, I get that. I so get that. My flesh so desires that. And that's where I want my, my flesh to, to surrender to my spirit and what I know to be truthful. Now again, don't think I'm going to go home today and say, God, just bring them trouble. Just bring them trouble so that they know the power. I'm still not going to welcome trouble. But when it comes time to pray for them and guide them, at least this stretches me past my flesh and that prayer of eliminating that problem. And if you've ever prayed to, for a problem to be eliminated from your kid's life, please do not think that you've done something awful. You've done something that's normal, okay? And I'm not saying that at times it's not even spiritual. And that's not even the right prayer. I'm just saying I know our tendency, and yet I also want my kids to know that as they walk, I want them to be 80 years old today at one day and say, I walked with God all these years and I found him faithful. Isn't that amazing? That's what I want. Put that on my tombstone, guys. If I die tomorrow, put that. I have walked for 55 years with God and I have found him faithful. And I want my kids to be able to say that. Not so said dad, so said mom, so prayed mom or dad. I want them to have a faith that is theirs, that is real. 
Because I promise you one thing, guys. They're growing up in a real bill that is far different from our real bill just 20, 30 years ago. And yet these are eternal promises. These are not promises where God goes, wow, I just didn't think we'd still be around in 2017. Can I start kind of adapting? No. He knows when the Lord is going to return, when he's going to send his son. He knows every day of history. He is sovereign God over all those things. And he knew that we'd be living in a day when violence and trouble and tragedy fill the news every single moment of every single day. And that our kids would be growing up that. And that's why he said, okay, I want you to pray toward, or teach them to know my presence and not just the elimination of problems. Let me end with this today. You know, we sang a song before um, about the angel armies. Do you all like that song? It's one of those encouraging songs. Chris Tomlin wrote it. He wrote it with a guy by the name of Ed Cash. Ed Cash and Chris Tomlin, they've written several songs together. And one time, uh, Chris Tomlin was in Nashville where Ed Cash lives. And, and uh, Ed Cash said, called him up and said, hey, can you come by? I, I got kind of a, a tune, kind of a, a song on my heart. And I, I just... It's almost completed. I want you to be a part. Help me write this. And where it came from is Ed Cash's wife at night was having a lot of panic attacks, a lot of anxiety attacks, would wake up in the middle of the night, and he would start to pray over her. And he would pray over her, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always on my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. Those, that's where those words came from. Really came from his experience and from his prayer. And then, you know, he began to think of maybe that familiar story or maybe an unfamiliar story to some of you in Second Kings. In Second Kings, where we actually see some of that kind of lived out, in Second Kings, there was the prophet Elisha. And Elisha was under attack, uh, as prophets often were. And overnight... This king that wanted to come up against Elisha moved in his armies. Let's pretend that you're Elisha, and he had a servant, okay? So you want to be Elisha? You're the prophet. You can be the servant, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay. And overnight, from the darkness of the night, this king moved in his enemies. I mean, the enemy moved in and surrounded them. And uh, so Elisha, he's the prophet. He's a man of God. He believes in God. And he really wasn't too disturbed from this. But the servant guy, <laughs> he was. Because he opened up his eyes, and guess what he saw? Nothing but armies around him. I want you to see what the prayer was in, in 2 Kings. Uh, that starts with verse 14. Let me start with there. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. This is the king that was coming against them. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Okay, so now you're surrounded. Okay. When the servant of the man of God, that's you, okay, <laughs> rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army, an, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Because all you see around you is the enemy. Sharp spears, sharp arrows, mean faces. Somehow he's not phased by this. He says in verse 16, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
No, you're just looking with the eyes and you're going, okay. One, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Nine. And you're going, I don't quite see this. I don't quite see this. There's two of us, Elisha, and you're kind of older and I'm kind of young. And there's a whole bunch of them and they have a whole bunch of armament and they don't look like they really are friendly. Here's what I want you to see, guys. Here's what Elisha prayed for his servant. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes so that he might see. So the Lord opened his eyes, the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There was this angelic army, this power of God for this battle that his fleshly eyes could not see, but his spiritual eyes, because he had been prayed for, hey, can look with spiritual eyes instead of earthly eyes. And he saw that. And all of a sudden we can sing a song about it today. Here, here's the thing, guys. Two, two applications, and then we'll go home and apply these. First one, realize the battle of looking through earthly eyes or spiritual eyes. And know that there's always going to be that tendency to look through earthly eyes. Realville. But if you are a Christian, if Christ is in your heart, he's redeemed you and saved you, he's given you now spiritual eyes. And you have the ability to look and see differently. Through earthly eyes, hey, there's the problem, it's a big problem. There's a whole bunch of people against us our spiritual eyes, and you begin to see the power of God and all of his promises. So that's application one, just for each one of us. As we go home, God, will you let me see with spiritual eyes? Because my earthly eyes are getting kind of freaked out here. Will you give me spiritual eyes to see this situation? Number two, and this is a really good for parents, for friends, for family, for this. Your tendency is always going to pray to be to pray for elimination. Would you pray this prayer for your family? What a beautiful prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers in all the Bible. Oh Lord, please open their eyes so that they might see. Would you just open their eyes so they can see? Because right now they see a thousand foes against them. God, will you open their eyes so they can see that you are this God who you claim to be. You are a strong power. You are sending a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, a mighty God, an everlasting father. Will you show with spiritual eyes that, that that's our prayer. That's how we pray for one another, guys. That's the prayer you pray for your kids, mom and dad. God, I know the tendency, elimination. Pray for God to open their eyes. Because can you imagine, after seeing one, two, and thousands, and then Elisha prays for your eyes to be open, and if you are that young servant, and you look out and you see these like angelic army out there, and you see chariots of fire and all that, what are you doing at that point? I mean, at that point you're going, yeah, I think we're okay. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that we're fine here. You know, because I see that, hey, even though my physical eyes just see the two of us, God, God, there's more behind the scenes. 
I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. <laughs> but thank both of y'all for, for playing the part. Do you get it? Fear is an amazing opponent in real real will. Until we take our last breath, you will fight and battle with fear. Genesis 3, Revelation 19. Real will happened in Genesis 3, and it doesn't stop to Revelation 19. That's where we live. That's why fear, afraid, all those words are used in in that part of the Bible. And yet we are called not to be slaves to fear. Even if you're a Christian and you've been given a victory through Jesus Christ, we can still be a slave to that fear. How do we overcome that? We just put our eyes on Christ. I know that sounds so simplistic. I know that sounds almost even idolistic for some that would be here this morning. Pastor, it cannot be that easy. No, it can't be that difficult, guys. He is who he is. He either is or he's not. Either we're the big, We are the biggest fools. I mean, that's what C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest minds who ever walked this earth, that was his conclusion. I'm going to paraphrase it, and then we're going to close. Basically, he said, if God is not who he says he is, if God is not real, then you are the most foolish of people to waste even one moment in this kind of fairy tale of challenge, you know, chasing after this mystical God. But if he is who he says he is, then you are the most foolish of person if you do not run to him and stay in his lap. Now, again, that, that's me adding quite a bit of verbiage there, but basically that was the premise. And that's where we live, guys. If God is who he says he is, then this is the reality. And that's where David can say, after he states the fact that you are my light, you're my salvation, you're my rescuer, whom shall I fear? doesn't say that fear won't come and attack, but he's asked the question that he already knows the answer to. And I pray that we would personalize that today, and then for those who are still struggling very much with that, that we would pray that prayer. God, will you open their eyes, will you open their eyes to be able to see the beauty of who you are? Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you. Father, we thank you that you have called us out of fear. And yet, Father, you have not uh, called us out of fearful situations. You've called us to faith. And yet, Father, there's a lot of situations where our faith is going to be so tested and so tried. And so, Father, we thank you that, uh, that you've already made this promise, Father, that you are our God, that you are strong. That, Father, in the valley of the shadow of death, that you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us, Father. Father, that in the midst of floods and fire, that you are with us. And, Father, help us to see that. When, Father, when when our earthly eyes say, see that it's just me and, and, and one other person against an army of thousands, Father, open our eyes to see the spiritual army that you have placed around us angels and chariots and ones that are ready to battle evil and darkness in our life. We love you and we thank you. And we pray now, Father, that we would truly, as we sing this last song, Father, that we are no longer a slave to fear. And Father, that we would understand that all of this comes, all of this comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It all hinges on him 
and our victory is in him. So we thank you and we praise you. And Father, for those that are struggling with fear today, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of this word. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.